It's Friday, and we are working for Crusoe. Sam Park and John Ramey with you on Friday, January 5th, 2024. Sam joining us in Hollywood. I am in downtown Fresno, California. Troubling signs the Hamas-Israel war may be on the verge of escalating into a larger regional conflict in the Middle East. A high-ranking Hamas official killed by what is presumed to be an Israeli drone strike in Beirut. Iran-backed Houthi militia attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, disrupting the global supply chain. That has led to a U.S. response. A deadly explosion in Iran turns out not to be the work of the Israeli military, but um, insidious timing on the claim of responsibility. And we have a December jobs report, plus a vision for post-war Gaza from the Israeli military. So let's get right to the jobs report, Sam Park. 216,000 jobs were added in December, another very healthy number, and in fact, quite an uptick after the November job numbers had been uh, revised downwards. So yes, November, I think October's were also. Yeah, October was only like 105,000, November was 173,000, December 216,000, and unemployment holding steady at 3.7%. Also, wages are now rising faster than inflation. They are up 4.1% from a year ago. Those are good indicators, considering that overall inflation has moderated. That's right. They're not great indicators, but they are good, as you say. Uh, overall, though, I think we'd have to mention that hiring is slowing. Right? They are adding jobs all the time, but not as much as they were earlier, that is to say, uh, in the middle of last year or so. Uh, and it does seem to indicate, as we've discussed, a soft landing, as opposed to some commentators were even specul speculating that there might be no landing, right? That the plane would just keep flying uh, at high speed. That is, the economy would just continue to roar along. So the economy is doing pretty good, but it's not uh, overheating to the point, we think, where uh, the Federal Reserve will have to revise its uh, end to interest rate hikes, we think. I suppose there is an outcome where inflation continues to moderate and, yeah, you don't have to hike interest rates anymore. And so unemployment can stay low and job growth can grow. I, I guess that's the best case scenario that I suppose a lot of naysayers were saying was pretty impossible this time last year. That's right. And uh, they're, you know, kind of taking it on the chin all last year. Uh, and you know what? That's fine. Not everybody's right all the time. Uh, and uh, let's face it, these were sort of unprecedented economic circumstances. So there wasn't really a template for understanding them. I would say, however, that economic forecasters might have understood that from the get-go, that they didn't really have the tools to analyze how this was going to work out. So perhaps they ought to have been a bit more careful in their forecasting. But of course, as I think we've mentioned before, you can't go on CNBC and go, oh, right? I mean, you have to say something, right? And, you know, they were, you know, speculating from numbers that usually yield certain outcomes and just didn't happen to this time because the circumstances were so different. All right, let's pivot to the Middle East where things are happening at an astonishing pace to start calendar 2024. Dateline Jerusalem is coming out yesterday reporting from Reuters, the Israeli defense minister, 
outlining plans for the next stage of Israel's war in Gaza. The plan is an enclave run by a Palestinian body under overall Israeli security control. This coincides with an anticipated drawdown of Israeli troops in the northern part of Gaza. Correct. Also coincides with Israel um, killing Hamas leaders in Beirut. So things are changing rapidly. Yes. And in fact, it, it coincides with a couple of other developments this week that didn't receive quite as much notice, but I think are actually more important than uh, might seem at first blush. For example, on I think it was Tuesday, uh, the Israeli uh, finance minister, a fellow named Betzalel Smotrich, uh, who is one of the most famous far right members of Benjamin Netanyahu's governing coalition, uh, suggested that large numbers of Gazans should be encouraged to relocate out of Gaza. He didn't say to where, uh, and that uh, Israel could then reestablish settlements inside the Gaza Strip. Uh, the following day, another member of the Israeli cabinet, Itmar Ben-Gavir, also on the hard right, although, interestingly, I would say, not in the same party as Betzalel Smotrich, came out and endorsed Smotrich's plan. Uh, now, of course, these plans are very much in line with the policies that both of these gentlemen have advocated in terms of the West Bank. Right. These are hardcore gung-ho settlement. They are settlers, guys. in fact, right? They they live in settlements in the West Bank. And uh, they've long advocated the resettlement of Palestinians from the West Bank to where they never, of course, specify. Uh, so this is an expansion, if you'll pardon the expression, of that policy to now include at least some of Gaza, theoretically. This idea was roundly dismissed by the American State Department, which issued a statement almost immediately saying, no, this is unacceptable. Gaza is Palestinian land, and it will be populated and governed by Palestinians. And I think that these developments helped, as, as well as the impending visit by Secretary of State Blinken, who I believe is going to arrive in Israel tomorrow or perhaps Sunday, uh, I think all of these things might have conspired to, uh, I don't know about cause, but at least uh, move along the statement that Defense Minister Yoav Gallant made just overnight. I guess I'm guessing at the beginning of, excuse me, the business day today in Israel. Because at that I can recall, this is the first statement of the war by a senior Israeli official that was more in line with the expressed preferences of the United States. Up until now, the Israeli government has seemed altogether too happy for my taste to defy the recommendations and expressed wishes of their great patron, the United States of America. And Gallant saying that Palestinians should be the ones governing Gaza right after the State Department said the same thing the day before, I think is a significant development. I hope it is, that is. It's possible that uh, it won't quite work out that way, but it does 
at least rhetorically, indicate some movement in the stance of the Israeli government. And I might add, I find it interesting that it was Defense Minister Gallant and not Prime Minister Netanyahu who made this adjustment of policy statement. 22,000 have died in Gaza after the Israeli military strikes following the October 7th Hamas atrocities in Israel. Those Hamas militants were based in Gaza. Correct. Gallant said the new military uh, strategy would be based in a more targeted approach in the northern section of Gaza, which coincides or which lines up with the drawdown I mentioned earlier. Uh, a targeted approach in the northern section of the enclave and then uh, continuing pursuit of Hamas leaders in the south. Now, you mentioned this is in line with what the United States has been expressing uh, their vision for uh, a less um, civilian killing vision for the Israeli military. But one thing the United States has been holding firm on and has kept Israel in check on until this week is expanding hostilities to the north and in Lebanon and Hezbollah, where there have been some limited exchanges. But now, on Tuesday, drone-fired missiles slammed into an apartment building in South Beirut, killing a top Hamas leader and lieutenants. Israel has declined to confirm or deny the role, uh, their role in the assassination of Saleh Arori. He's an exiled Hamas official. He was a liaison to Iran and Hezbollah. He was reportedly on the Israeli military's kill list. For quite some time, yes, long before October 7th, I should add. Right. Palestinian experts now say this is the most significant assassination of any senior Hamas official since the war began on October 7th. So on the one hand, you have Gallant indicating plans that are in line with what the United States would like to see. But on the other hand, you have Israel ratcheting up attacks to the north, which is something the United States has been trying to keep a lid on since the start of the conflict. Yes, I think, for example, although, as you say, Israel has not taken credit for the killing of Al-Aruri. I mean, uh, we, we know it's them. Well, yes. Uh, the, the smart people think it's Israel's doing. Well, not just that, but uh, there are commentators in the Israeli media who generally toe the government line who have come up and said, this was not an attack on Lebanon. We have, the, the, that is, the Israeli government has vowed to eradicate Hamas, and that is what we're doing. And, for example... As long as I've been paying attention to this issue, which is a period of decades, I might add, I don't know how many times I've seen news stories that say Israel conducted an airstrike that killed a, a senior Hamas leader. This has happened dozens of times. And so it's easy for all these incidents to sort of blur together. But Saleh al-Aruri was in a different league. He was not from Gaza, for instance. He His hometown was Ramallah in the West Bank. And he was not only, as you say, liaison to Hezbollah in Lebanon and Iran, but he was actually in charge of Hamas activity in the West Bank, where they're not based. The West Bank, as we know, is governed by the Palestinian Authority, with whom 
Hamas has generally had hostile relations up to and including outright armed conflict. So if you're the Hamas guy in charge of Hamas's operations in the West Bank, to put it mildly, that is a delicate matter, right? You can't just get some schmo off the street to do this. So Al-Aruri was a big target for the Israelis. And as I said before, he, he someone of that senior level is someone that should have been expected to be targeted at some point or another. For example, if I were Hassan Nasrallah, the who gave two speeches this week, the head of Hezbollah in Lebanon, I would have gotten word to Al-Aruri two months ago at least and said, listen, I'm telling you this as a friend. You need to disappear. I don't want to know where you are because I don't want anybody to know where you are because you have got a target on your back. He had when, one before the start of the war. Exactly. And when the and but he's got an even bigger one after the start of the war. And if the Israelis take you out, some of our people are going to get caught because that's what happens in any one of these assassination airstrikes conducted by the Israelis against senior Hamas leaders. Now, I can't make you go away. Uh, but you could do me a favor if you could make yourself difficult to find. And it really doesn't seem as though Al-Aruri did anything like that. The Israelis killed him exactly where you would expect to find him, in the southern suburbs of Beirut, which are known to be a Hezbollah stronghold. If he was trying to hide, he wasn't doing a very good job. On the other hand, it's possible that Hezbollah thinks, no, we have to show solidarity with our brothers in Hamas. And so we need to show that we're allowing them to continue to operate in the open here in Lebanon. It's possible that they made that calculation. But that calculation is so foreign to the way I would think about this that it, it's sobering to me to think that they might have made that calculation instead. Speaking of solidarity, Nasrallah, the Hezbollah leader in Lebanon, after the uh, the assassination of Aruri, has fired up again with rhetoric. Right? Yes. Like, Two different way, speeches. Yeah. Yeah. In the way, in a way that he hasn't since the start of the war, where he kind of walked up to a red line but didn't cross it uh, immediately after October seventh. He's kind of doing the same thing after keeping quiet for a while, as I understand. Yes, that's right. He uh, he spoke originally on Wednesday and again and then again today. Still and all, however, he has not declared all-out war against Israel. He said things like, "It's inevitable that we re will will re retaliate," uh, but and again, it's possible that this will explode. There are a number of different factors that could enter into this that could just ignite the powder keg. But so far knock on wood, that hasn't occurred. So another development this week involved an explosion in Iran that for a moment might have been another possible trigger point spark in the powder keg. 95 people killed, dozens injured Wednesday, two blasts in the central Iranian city of Kerman. Thousands of people had gathered to commemorate uh, Major General Qasem Soleimani 
He was assassinated four years ago. Wednesday was the anniversary. That was a U.S. drone strike in Iraq, killing uh, Soleimani. He was an Iranian. And this explosion, which again, killed, initially it was estimated killed over 100 people. It's been revised to at least 95 plus the injured. Um, nobody claimed credit for a while. And it turned out the Islamist, uh, the Islamic State would eventually claim credit and this was a rather cunning delay in the uh, claiming of responsibility, wasn't it, Sam? I think so, yeah. I mean, it's difficult to say uh, because as difficult as I find it to get into the mindset of uh, the people in Hezbollah, as I was, was just talking about, it's even more difficult to get into the mindset of, of people like Islamic State. There's so many of these militant Muslim groups that, again, they we tend to sort of lump them all in together. But Islamic State is so far out there that I can't even imagine what they might think. So I'm a little reluctant to ascribe any sort of calculation to this. But, for example, they don't like the Taliban in Afghanistan because the Taliban is content to simply govern Afghanistan and do not want to establish a worldwide caliphate. Therefore, they're traitors to the cause and must be destroyed. It's This is how extreme these people are. And of course, they don't like Iran because Iran is the great Shia, Shia superpower uh, in the Muslim world. And Shias are even, I think, if I were an Islamic state, I might think they were even worse than the Jews, right? Because the Jews never knew the true faith, right? Whereas Shia Muslims did know it and abandoned it. So they're worse than unbelievers. They're apostates, right? Uh, so they eventually claimed credit. However, right after the bombings, Iran immediately blamed Israel. Uh, and they said that the bombings had taken place. They were suitcase bombings that were set off by remote control. That then, was not true, as it turns out. Then the next day, they changed their story and said, oh, actually, they were suicide bombers. So, well, what happened to the suitcases? Uh, and Because both of these stories can't be true. Uh, and so you must have made up the first one or the second one. Uh, and so, John, you know very well, I don't mind busting on the American media when they make a mistake. But at least we have a you know free and sometimes adversarial media. If you only have state-run media, they just don't see anything wrong with coming up with some completely bogus story uh, and telling people that and then say, oh, sorry, that just wasn't true at all the next day. Uh, and so I, and I think also it, it was an interesting contrast because Iran blamed Israel, but that's not the sort of thing that Israel does. And it happened. Certainly not. And that happened the day after something that is exactly the sort of thing that Israel always does. And so you had a, an immediate counter right, This is the day after the Tuesday assassination. Yeah, this is the day the after Al-Aruri was killed in Beirut. And so it's just like, no, this is what Israel does. And so this other thing, I mean, nobody was, found this credible at all. But I thought that Islamic State might be trying to goad Iran into retaliating against Israel immediately and touching off a region-wide war that would only suit their purposes. Because if the Shiites and the Jews are killing each other, that's great for them. We, they hate both groups. Now, I have no basis for speculating about that. And again, 
I'm loath to try and speculate as to the motivations of people like Islamic State, but it at least seems to be a plausible idea as to why they might have done something like this. But it might just be any day that we can kill Shiites is a good day. I just think it's illuminating for maybe the American or the Western person who doesn't think too deeply about the complexity of Islamist terrorism, right? You have a Shia theocracy in Iran that hates America, calls it the great Satan, and backs multiple terrorist militant groups. And yet that's not good enough for Sunni Islamic State, right? Well, As you said, the there, is there are just layers to this where you can't just kind of, you. it is incorrect to lump all Islamist terrorist and militant groups together because they in fact hate each other to some degree as well in many ways yes i mean for instance islamic state is only half right right they're islamic they're not a state right uh they seek to establish one yes but they don't they have not succeeded in doing so yet iran is a state right so they have to govern a country they have people that you know they're not very good at answering to but uh if things got very bad those people might potentially overthrow them. Islamic State doesn't have to worry about stuff like that. They can just kill people. Right. They don't have to make the trains run on time no. or keep the lights on or anything. Yeah, like collect that. the garbage or anything like that. Right. Okay, the Red Sea. Sam, this this week is insane. It, it's really East, it's crazy. just like plot twists. So Happy today, New Year, everybody. I know. I mean, we knew 2024 was going to be harrowing for a number of reasons, but like right out I'm of the I kind of hoped we could ease into it. I know. So today... Maersk, the Danish shipping giant, says it's extending its diversion of its ships from the Red Sea for the, quote, foreseeable future. This is because of Yemen-based, Iran-backed uh, Iran Houthi militants attacking ships in the Red Sea. The Houthis say they're attacking ships bound for Israel in support of the Palestinians in the Israel-Gaza war, but more than those targets have been hit, right? There have That's been right. There have been a lot of ships attacked. Uh, ships bound for multiple destinations have been attacked. So the United States is now leading a military response against the Houthis just to secure, secure uh, just to secure commercial shipping in the Red Sea, which is a huge part of global trade. It's called Operation Prosperity Guardian. Uh, yes, US and we should say that this is because the Red Sea is what leads to the Suez Canal and right. th thence into the Mediterranean. That's the real bottleneck there. Uh, in fact, Maersk had originally made the exact same statement about a month ago, or at least in, in mid-December. Yeah, they had an initial pause. That's right, along with all the rest of their major competitors. Uh, then after Operation Prosperity Guardian was announced, Maersk announced that they would resume shipping into the Red Sea, but things have gotten too out of hand since then. Uh, and so they've reversed that decision and have, are now avoiding the Red Sea. And this will certainly exert some degree of inflationary pressure on the world economy because it will just raise shipping rates across the world. In fact, when this started to ramp up a couple weeks ago, I read an article about it in The Economist, and they mentioned a company called Drury which is a specialty market research firm that tracks the maritime shipping industry. And in that endeavor, 
they maintain what they call the world container index, which is like a stock index, except that what's a container worth? Yeah. How much does it cost to ship one? Right. Right. And that is a standard 40 foot shipping container. And of course, shipping rates don't change anywhere near as quickly as stock prices. So the fine people at Drury only update the index every two weeks. Fortunately for us, this is one of those weeks. So the reading on the WCI this week is $2,600. Two weeks ago, it was about $1,600, an increase of about 60%. Uh, Two weeks before that, it was down around $1,200, which is the what was the low of the year or about as low as as uh container shipping had gotten all last year that is in 2023 it's worth remembering though john you probably recall the story of a freight liner called the ever given i have my note right here march 2021 the suez canal was blocked for six days by the ever given it just ran aground there were no houthis Intacking it or anything. That's right. And it ran aground horizontally, blocking off the entire canal. A tremendous uh, metaphor for the state of uh, global trade at that point. Correct. Because it was just bouncing, beginning to bounce back from the pandemic. And at that point, the Drury World Container Index was $22,000 for a container. So we've got some way to go. And of course, the it, the ever given was as you say sort of emblematic because the shipping industry was at that point suffering from an enormous dearth of capacity because during the pandemic shipping companies had collapsing revenues so they weren't investing in things like fleet maintenance uh and so that's not the kind of thing you can ramp back up very quickly there was just not enough ships back then now the shipping industry is believed, according to people like Drury, to have actually an oversupply. Uh, and that's why uh, even this episode, uh, serious as it is, uh, hasn't caused an explosion in shipping rates, although I'm confident that they will continue to rise from the WCI figure of $2,600 this week. Uh, just another note on Operation Prosperity Guardian. Uh, U.S. Navy helicopters returned fire and sank three of the four Houthi boats that had attacked a Maersk ship over the weekend. That's according to the U.S. military. Regarding the impact in global trade with the Red Sea now becoming a no-go zone for commercial shipping, according to Kuhn Nagel, a freight carrier, uh, $225 billion in trade has been impacted over one uh, over 330 vessels, $4.5 million containers. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. So I have a question, Professor Park. You talked about shipping rates with inflationary pressure. Does scarcity because companies like IKEA and big retailers like uh, British retailer Next and Electrolux have also said there's going to be delays in products, right? So you're going to have, it costs more and shelves are going to be empty longer. So you're That's going to have right. scarcity what, too, right? That's what's one of the two components of inflation is a scarcity of goods. Therefore, uh, this will add inflationary pressures. That's exactly the point I was making. And another thing I think is interesting about this is that, for instance, the single country that will be most affected by this is Egypt, because 
they control the Suez Canal and gain quite a lot of their Yeah, that's revenue. a good business for Egypt, as I understand yeah, it. Yeah, from just transit fees through yeah. the canal. Yeah. Uh, and Egypt, as we recall, just joined the expanded BRICS grouping, as along the with the year. Yeah. Iran, who are thought to be, or not just thought to be, but actually are the patron of the Houthi militia. And oh. as we discussed in our show about the expansion of BRICS, yeah. Basically, first among equals in the BRICS grouping is China. So why isn't China getting Egypt using, and Iran in a back room somewhere? Yeah, and exerting whatever influence they might have on Iran and saying, listen, you need... Because, by the way, China ships quite a lot yeah. of goods through the canal themselves. Right. It they don't need any uh, interruption in global supply chains especially not now when their economy is not doing especially well is it actually worth it to them just to stick it to the west i would find that difficult to believe but it's certainly not out of the question but of course we have no idea what sort of uh back channel communications are happening and by the way uh the Houthis, yeah, they're patronized by Iran. Iran provides them with lots of weapons, probably a fair amount of money, perhaps even some food aid. But Iran can't tell them what to do and what not to do. They might just be doing this on their own. Uh, and Iran might actually say, look, you might want to take it easy on this. Uh, and they would just say, no, we're not going to. Uh, they can't just, they're not a puppet of Iran. They're a, more of a client, I would say. Yeah, and once Iran has given them cash, weapons, and whatever else, they don't have to listen to Iran until they need more. Yes, exactly. You know, now at some point that might happen, but and but then again, it could be that Iran's perfectly happy to have this happen. We don't actually know. They also, by the way, sent a ship into the Red Sea this week. Okay, so the diversion, right? This is the maritime angle because I because I've had about seven or eight sailing lessons in my life, so I'm just dangerous enough when it comes to boats the diversion means they can't ships cannot container ships cannot go through the suez canal into the red sea or into the red sea through the suez canal into the mediterranean that means the quickest path between europe and asia is now taking the route the route the shipping voyage around the cape of good hope the bottom of africa yes that's a long that's a much longer journey that's right. And a, a ship that is late arriving in port will be late dropping off the goods it's carrying and late picking up the right. goods that it's going to carry on its next leg. So uh, this sort of thing, uh, again, it's very bad, but it's not catastrophic for the shipping industry. Uh, there's enough slack built in right now that it can handle it. But having said that, this is a situation that we should like to see corrected as quickly as possible. Maersk said, quote, the situation is constantly evolving and remains highly volatile and all available intelligence at hand confirms that the security risk in the Red Sea continues to be at a significantly elevated level. So they're on pause for the second time in two months. And this could go on for quite some time. I would say uh, that... It's probably good for South Africa, another member of BRICS, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, because 
you know, just have to go buy them now. Yeah, they you know they they might want to stop for fuel or something like that. That was actually the original uh, geopolitical purpose of South Africa before the canal was built. That's why Europeans were anxious to settle there, just to have a stopover point between Europe and and Asia. I do appreciate the inherently analog nature of shipping. Right, there's enough slack built into the system because boats break and storms happen. It's yeah. not like it's not just an email server. Oh, and right? that's why Drury's like, yeah, we'll just update every couple of weeks. We don't have to right. do this it every second of every day. Exactly. Right? Because it, ships don't instantaneously uh, uh, circumnavigate the globe or whatever. Yeah. And you uh, can't build a new one in a day. Right. right. I mean, uh, uh, anything else you want to touch on regarding the Red Sea or shall we look ahead uh, to a couple of stories we think will be big next week? I think we should lo look ahead to next week because we honestly like the issue in the Red Sea, we could probably talk about it for another hour, but that, that yeah, I think we've covered it very well thus far. I would like to point out that we did have the uh, Hamas-Israel war as one of the big stories for 2024 because of its kind of unknown impact or radiating impact outwards. And here it is in the first week. Not, yeah, I'm not I'm, saying we're geniuses. I'm sure plenty of smart people thought about it, but it's happening. Yeah, and it is. Uh, honestly, the the shipping angle is, I think, particularly interesting to us just because it it combines our two topics, right? It's right. both an economics issue and an international affairs issue. And so it's right up our street, as we might say. Okay, Bangladesh is going to the polls uh, on Sunday in uh, fewer than 48 hours. And it is not a mystery as to who's going to win. Prime Minister Asina will seize... That's Sheikh Hasina to you, Sheikh Hasina, excuse me. Right. Uh, it is almost certain that uh, Sheikh Hasina will win a fourth consecutive term. Uh, the opposition party is saying it's uh, not a legitimate election. They've been severely repressed. And they're boycotting because of that repression. Yeah, Many of them have been arrested, uh, etc. Uh, but for us, it'll be a good way to kick off uh, 2024's electorama global elections extravaganza, uh, because uh, even though there's no suspense about who's going to win, uh, for once, we can actually ease into something that we know is going to develop uh, over time. So we can kind of dust off our elections chops uh, as we move into a, a, a very elections heavy year, which is now seemingly going to include Great Britain. Not yes, for certain, uh, but right. the, they seem to think that they're going to have an election. I think In the back end of the year, right? That's what Rishi said. Yeah, Rishi, Rishi Sunak said perhaps at these in the second half of the year. I think somebody has to pull a sword out of a rock or something. I, I don't know exactly what they do over there. <laughs> oh, that's good, Sam. Uh, and then finally, regarding um, congestion in the United States legislative branch and uh, a deal to aid Ukraine and also reform the southern border and a partridge in a pear tree, right? Everything jammed into this deal. Uh, the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, non-committal about legislation in the works uh, that could uh, group Ukraine and the border security. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who is a Democrat. Johnson, of course, is a Republican. Schumer says the upper chamber is, quote, closer, all things being relative, to a deal. So I guess the Senate is more prepared to pass something with the House, shockingly, is in chaos. The, and we'll find out exactly 
or not exactly, but ha have some indication about exactly how big and an extremist Mike Johnson is. Because I, there's every chance, I think, that he'll just shut down the government rather than fund Israel, Ukraine, and the border. Uh, be, be, especially because it seems inevitable that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. I don't, And so I think the Republicans might just want to line up very quickly behind him. And by the way, it seems as though President Biden believes the same thing. In case, if you watched his speech today, he it was all about Donald Trump. It didn't seem to enter his mind that anybody else was going to be his opponent. And I think he's probably right about that. All right. That'll do it for us on this Friday, January 5th, 2024. Feels like it's been shot out of a cannon. We knew it would be exciting, but my word, a, a ferocious start to this, uh, as you said, probably harrowing year. So. I'm afraid so, yes. All right. He's Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. Uh, email us at johnramymedia at gmail.com, johnramymedia at gmail.com. And we will visit with you next Friday. So long, everybody. Happy New Year.